this morning, we're in John chapter 11, okay? So if you'll look with me at John chapter 11, and we have been going through the I am statements of Jesus um, over the last several weeks, and we're continuing that uh, this morning and have a couple more of those in the weeks to come. And I uh, so, uh, hope you've enjoyed this time in the Gospel of John. So we're in John 11 this morning, and one of the more, I don't know, one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of John, the story of Jesus and Lazarus, uh, Lazarus uh, where Jesus reveals himself as the resurrection and the life. And so that is our theme this morning, is what does that mean? What does that entail for our lives? What does this passage tell us about the world we live in? What does it tell us about Jesus, what he's doing in this world? What does it tell us about you and me, and what, is it, what meaning does it have for that? Because here's the thing, we're going to conf- deal with something very real in the passage this morning. You talk about the scriptures being applicable to your life, it doesn't get more applicable than this, and that is this, every single one of us is going to die, and this passage is about death and sickness and hurt and pain and suffering. And every single one of us encounters sickness and pain and suffering in some form or fashion. And death and loss of friends and loss of family members. That's what this passage is about. Jesus is right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of it. And so, um, you know, we're all going to die. Good morning. Welcome to church. So, but seriously, we don't like talking about it. We don't like thinking about it. That's why we buy health insurance and, and life insurance. And we kind of lock that stuff away somewhere. And we don't really, we don't really talk about it much after that. But... You know, the Bible tells us all the way back in the book of Job. Did you know Job's the oldest book of the Bible, they tell us? In the book of Job, one of the people rebuking Job, one of his friends, Job had great friends, right? You never read that book, that's a joke. But um, they're talking to him about the death of the wicked, right? Because they assume Job was wicked. And how the wicked die. And the, and the guy, his friend, refers to the death of the wicked. He refers to death in that story as the king of terrors. The king of terrors. Because death is universal, the king of tears. And ever since the first person died after the fall, right, which was actually one of the children of Adam and Eve, Abel, who was murdered by Cain, ever since the first person died, death has been the king of terrors reigning on this earth. To the point that Hebrews 2.15 tells us that apart from Jesus, that through the fear of death, we are subject to lifelong slavery. Death is a king of terrors that enslaves us. It is a hard taskmaster, enslaves us to its fear. It paralyzes us in lifelong slavery. Leo Tolstoy, you might have heard that name before and think, who is that? He was a Russian author who, author who wrote War and Peace, right? That's his fam- most famous work. And he said the question that nearly drove him to suicide at the age of 50 was, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Isn't that the question of life? Is there any meaning in life that death's just not going to wipe out? In light of the fact that we could be here today and gone tomorrow, is there anything in life that really makes a difference? You know, it's, it's kind of like the question of Ecclesiastes. It's the question of, of life itself. Where is the meaning? And death causes us to ask that question. And death reminds us we're human. It reminds us we're sinners. It reminds us that we're broken. It reminds us that there's a judgment coming and that there is a God And sickness and trials and pain in this life that we all go through on a daily basis remind us that death is real. And the good news of the Bible is that when Jesus came, he came to confront these problems. He comes and he confronts sickness and he confronts pain and he confronts suffering and he confronts death. He doesn't skirt the issue. He doesn't avoid the issue. He doesn't just say nice things. Let me tell you how to make your life better now. He comes to deal with the issues that make you wonder if life's worth living in the first place. 
The, the question beneath all the other questions, the need beneath all those other felt needs, Jesus gets right to the point. He came to deal with that stuff. And in John chapter 11, we get a story swarming with pain and suffering and loss and sickness and death. And right in the middle of it is Jesus. And by the way, at times he's doing things that we and they didn't fully understand. But he's there. And in John 11, we read of him revealing himself as the resurrection and the life. And in the face of sickness and pain and suffering and death, as we all need answers, what we find is that Jesus gives us himself. And we need to wonder this morning as we read this passage, what will we hold to in the face of suffering and in the face of death? What, what can we know is true? And so we need to dig into this passage and find out. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through the first 44 verses of John chapter 11. I'll stop and explain some things along the way, and then we'll look at some implications of this passage. So look with me starting in verse 1 of John 11. I am reading from the ESV. should be on the screen this morning for you if you don't have scriptures with you. Now, a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, talking about Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now here we have a family. Pause for a second. A family Jesus is close to. You see that? Lazarus and his sisters, Martha and Mary, these are good friends of Jesus. Jesus had people he were closer to than others because he was human. He had, he, had, he had the disciples, then he had the three, right? James and John and, and, um, James and, John and Peter. And he spent a little bit more time with. And here we have a family that he, he had other friends, but he spent a little bit more time with, it seems so. And this is the, the family, you've heard the story maybe, of Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. That, that story we have in the Bible, that worshipful story. It's that Mary. It's her brother. It's that Martha. The Martha and Mary where Martha was all distracted when Jesus was over one time and doing all this other stuff. And Mary was sitting at his feet listening. Remember that story? That's this family. There's multiple stories in the New Testament about it because Jesus spent so much time at their house. This is one of his buddies. Right? This guy's on the short list. He's, he's on Jesus' favorite on his iPhone, right? This is a guy he calls with the push of a button. And Jesus' response is that the illness does not lead to death. Now, he doesn't mean that Lazarus is not going to die, but that he will ultimately die, we'll see. And this particular illness is for the glory of God. In other words, people are going to better see and understand who Jesus is as the Son of God so that both Jesus and his Father are glorified. Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Mark and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now we have to stop and think about that for a second. That's just a weird statement. He loved them when he heard he was sick, so he stayed for two days longer. Does that sound strange? Jesus loved this family, so when he heard one of them was sick and might die, he hung out a while and didn't go back. I mean, that's what John's telling us. Is that how you communicate love, right? Seems like the opposite, right? But it's not. See, it's for the glory of God, Jesus says. Jesus is waiting on purpose. His, his, his delay is purposeful. His heart is set on their ultimate good and what is ultimately going to be best for their family in the end. What they would see and what they would experience and have happened to their faith was of more consequence than the temporary suffering that they were about to encounter. And Jesus wasn't going to do them a, a, a good thing when he could give them a great thing. 
And that was what was about to happen. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now let's pause there. Thomas, he's always got some words, right? In verse 11, Jesus tells them that he's going to awake Lazarus. They're confused by it. They think Lazarus, you know, probably because he was sick, that he had just fallen into some sort of deep sleep or something. But they don't really get what's going on. So Jesus has to make it clear for them. And notice, Jesus says to them, I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake. It's very similar to what he says when he says what? Or what, he, what we see when Jesus waits. He loves them, the, the family. So he waits and doesn't go back quite yet. Here we see Jesus, glad I wasn't there for your sake. Because if I had been, I might have healed him. But you're going to get, this is going to be good for your what? Your faith, so that you might believe. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whether you ask, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said to her, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could he not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Now let's pause for a second. It tells us at the beginning of this section in verse 17 that Lazarus has been dead four days. Why does he note that? Why is that significant? Well, in their culture, many Jews in that day thought that the spirit of the person after dying would hang around the body for a few days. But by the fourth day, it would be gone. So if something would have happened before, then they might have thought it was some sort of resuscitation or something like that, that maybe he wasn't really dead because that was just part of their, their cultural belief. 
Not because it was written in the scriptures anywhere or anything like that. It's just like a lot of things in the world. It's just something they believe because they had been told it by somebody, right? It was just a cultural thing. Jesus knew that, obviously, right? He grew up in a Jewish family. He was Jewish. He knew the culture. He understood what they thought. So he waited to the fourth day, not because I think he was waiting on Lazarus to die. Lazarus was very possibly already dead by the time they got to Jesus and told him he was ill. He waited to the fourth day because he wanted to make sure that they understood this is not some hoax, this is not by accident. I have power over death, which is what he's about to show them in verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him, let him go. <coughs> it's been said that had not Jesus called Lazarus by name, all the graves in all the world would have burst open that day. <laughs> Jesus has so much, his ultimate authority over power and death. When he speaks to the dead, he says, Live, the dead live. The dead don't really have a choice but to live when the one who has authority over death speaks and says, live. And so Jesus says, Lazarus, live. Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. Showing his authority over death. Showing that he is the resurrection and life. Showing us that he is the one who came to reconcile and make sense of all that is wrong in the world. That came to heal our broken and dying world. So three things out of this text. And I want us to kind of look at three big pieces that I want us to see about the world and Jesus and what that means for us this morning. Number one, we need to understand the world is broken and dying. We talk about this a lot because the Bible tells us this a lot. It's like everywhere you go in the Bible, it's reminding us of how broken and dying the world is. Here's how broken the world is. Jesus' friends get sick and die. That's how messed up this world is right now. That the Son of God, who has authority over death, that his friends get sick and die. Think about that. That's a testimony to the brokenness, the fallenness of this world. In fact, the world is so broken and dying that the Son of God would come and need to die in order to rectify the situation. Sometimes people think, maybe you thought this before, I think we all have. You've went through a difficult time, a painful time, a broken time in your life, and we think, why me? That's just human nature. Why me? Why am I doing? Not because we wish it on someone else. We just don't understand, you know, statistically. Why me? Why me? Why am I going? Because we can't make sense. Of, sometimes we go through something and we know why me. Because we can look and we can see choices that we've made that led there. But sometimes, some things in this life, this life is so broken and so unexplainable. Sometimes there's just no explanation for it. We just go, why me? Or why them? Why my friend? Why my family member? Or why me? Well, imagine if you're Lazarus. You're buddies with the Son of God. And you've seen Him heal the blind and turn water into wine, and things of these nature, this nature. You believe Him to be the Son of God, the Messiah. That's a big why me. It's a big why me. And as you've probably thought at times in your life, I know I have, maybe it was when you lost a job, or maybe it was when you got 
sick, or maybe it was when you got hurt, or maybe it was when you experienced some form of emotional or physical pain. But here's the thing. The reason the Scriptures constantly comes back to this, it helps us make sense of the world we live in. When we understand the brokenness of the world, we can then understand why us. Because this brokenness and death is felt throughout the passage. It's felt throughout our world. It helps us make sense of the world that we're in. When we understand the why me is not necessarily... Not usually because of something specific we did. It's nothing like it's the very the very foundation of our world is cracked. The world's not as it should be. So we get why means all the time. Because nothing is as it should be. The world is a broken place because sin has wreaked havoc on the world. And we see that in this passage. We see Lazarus sick. We see Lazarus die. We see Jesus shows up. We see grief that comes with that. Martha and Mary's broken heart. And it's Jesus weeping. And it's due to sin in the world that the world is the way it is and it's broken. And so we have sickness and pain and suffering and death and all the things in the world that we hate because of sin. Sickness is in the world. Pain is in the world. Suffering is in the world due to sin. But not all sin and not all suffering are due to personal sin. We have to make that clarification. I would even go so far as to say the vast majority of it probably isn't. It's possible for us to be sick or hurt or have something because of personal sin, right? You go to rob a bank and fall down and break your leg, guess what? That one's on you, right? You fall off the roof robbing a house and break your neck, guess what? Your sin calls your sickness, right? So that is possible. But most of the time in this world, we're just living in the consequences of the fall that we've all contributed to with all of our sin. The world's just a broken place. In this case, Lazarus' particular sickness was going to lead to God being glorified, but it was not going to happen after he died. But the whole scene reminds us how broken and dying that the world really is. And that death is no respecter. That sickness, pain, and suffering is no respecter of who we are. Or how close to Jesus we are. Befalls all of us. Number two, Jesus is present and at work in this broken and dying world. That's the other obvious thing. The first week we see the brokenness. Second, we see Jesus present and active. And though he's ascended into heaven, we know he is still present and active today. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus came to confront brokenness, to confront death head on. Sin has wreaked its havoc, but Jesus has come to go toe to toe with sin, death, and hell. Toe-to-toe with brokenness. Notice Jesus didn't run from the issue. In fact, He waited to maximum opportunity to show His glory and His power. And He ran towards the issue. And ultimately, Jesus came to deal with the consequences of the fall. And ultimately, that means to reconcile sinners to God. And this glorifies Jesus as He does this. And it glorifies the Father who sent Him. Just as in the passage, Jesus is waiting and working to that end. So it is in redemption. Jesus is working to that end, redeeming people unto Himself, reconciling people to God, unto the glory of God. Now, Jesus is present and active doing that in our world today. Now, I want you to notice three important pieces here about this, about His presence and activity. First of all, notice His identity on display. Jesus said to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. That's the, the core piece of His identity that this passage wants us to see. Of Him as the Messiah, as God of the flesh, 
He is, that I am, we've said each week, refers back to the Old Testament, places like Genesis and Isaiah, to the name of God. Jesus is identifying himself with God, identifying himself with Yahweh, and saying, I am, and here's something you need to know about me, the resurrection and the life. Jesus' presence and activity in this world would not be significant if he weren't who she says he is, right? The Son of God, Christ. It's who Jesus is. It's his identity that makes it possible for Jesus to do what he does. Is it? The death of Jesus makes no sense, has no power apart from his identity as the sinless Son of God. And so Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He's revealing his identity. We see his identity all over this faction. You are the Son of God. You are the Christ. You are the sent one. Jesus praying to his Father, I want him to know I'm the one that you have sent all about us seeing and understand, understanding who He is. That's what this passage is driving at. As the resurrection and the life, Jesus is stating that He alone has power over death. That He alone can raise the dead and give eternal life, impart eternal life. Now the Jews believe in a resurrection from the dead. Just like in many ways we as Christians believe that today. A future resurrection. That one day in the future all would be raised to life, to judgment. That the righteous would be raised and rewarded and the wicked would be judged and punished. That was standard Jewish belief of the, of the Pharisees. The only people that didn't believe in a resurrection were the Sadducees. And you know the old joke, right? What is it? And that's why they were sad. See? Yeah. It's hopeless. But the standard Jewish belief was in this resurrection from the dead. Jesus here is saying, yeah, you've heard about the doctrine. Now meet the person. Only in Jesus is resurrection possible. Only in Jesus is it possible to see death defeated. And only in Jesus is it possible to receive eternal life. Who says things like this, like Lazarus come forth, like I am the resurrection and the life? The person that says these things and makes these promises matters. Jesus' identity as the Son of God, as the I am, gives, a, gives meaning to his presence in the world. Imagine you're walking a car lot looking for a new car, and I pull up, right? And I walk over to you and I say, you like that one? You say, yeah, I really like this one. I say, how about I knock 20% off? <laughs> Did I miss something, right? Did you buy a car lot when I wasn't looking at it? You, you, you prepare sermons. You don't sell cars. I'm a little confused. I would have no authority. It wouldn't make any sense. It would just be, it would just be, it would be a joke is what it would be, Right? You would need somebody with the authority, the manager, the owner of the lot, or somebody to make that kind of move and say, how about I knock 20%? Okay, now we're not allowed to talk, okay? So it, it makes no it's no it's nothing to us for Jesus to say, I'm the resurrection and the life, apart from His identity actually being that, that He is the I Am, and the resurrection and the life, that He is the Son of God. His identity means everything. His promises mean nothing. They're null and void apart from His identity. So how do we... How do we know his identity? Well, this story is pointing us ahead to the day to the thing that's going to literally drive the nail on the ground so we can know once and for all what his identity and what his identity was. He spent his whole ministry showing it to people. But this is pointing us ahead to his resurrection. That would be the neon sign that would flash throughout all of eternity for people to know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. And he has the authority to say and do the things he promises. So as we see Jesus present in the world, the first thing we need to understand is his identity is what makes, gives that meaning. Next thing I want you to see in this passage 
is his righteous anger. Because that has something to do with his presence and activity. His working in the world. Notice his emotions when he speaks with Mary and goes to the tomb. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That phrase, deeply moved in spirit, can speak to, we, we tend to think of it as just kind of like emotionally troubled in the sense of sad. That Jesus was sad. And I do believe there's some sadness in England. But the scholar D.A. Carson points out, and I think very accurately, this word actually has at its root, it's really about anger. It was the same word they used for a horse when it would like snort, you know? Like an anger, like stomp its foot. So as Jesus speaks with Mary and he sees all the people crying and he approaches the tomb, he's not just sad, he's angry. He's angry. He's not lashing out, not that kind of anger. In his spirit, he's angry. Some say it's because of all the professional grievers that were around. The Jews would surround themselves with paid grievers, right? The cause of certain, and the hypocrisy of that. I think that's probably part of the reason. It's more than that, though. Jesus' anger is likely directed at the things we see in the broken world that he's coming face to face with death and unbelief. That despite what he says, people are not wrapping their minds around the fact. That he is who he is. Even the one who's calling him the Christ is like, oh, don't, don't move the rock. He stinks. Right? Just the lack of, of unbelief. Because Jesus looks at sin and Jesus looks at the consequences of sin like death and suffering and pain and he gets angry, righteously angry because he loves his people, because he loves God, because he loves righteousness. He loves what is right. And surely, as I think it was Carson that pointed out at the if he hates sin, he certainly hates unbelief too. Because unbelief is sin. Jesus doesn't consider death a friend. I believe Jesus was angry here, even at death. The consequence of sin. Well, let me ask you. Don't you want a Savior who gets righteously angry at sin and at death and at Satan and at unbelief? and a hypocrisy, and not one who just kind of waves his hand at it? Don't you want one who not just loves you, but gets righteously angry at sin, death, and hell, and unbelief, and hypocrisy, and all those things? Listen, you don't want a Savior who is indifferent towards sin, death, unbelief, and hypocrisy. Because that kind of Savior will leave you in your sin, death, hell, and hypocrisy. He'll leave you in all these things if He's indifferent towards it. But He's righteously angry towards it. We should thank God, even in this passage, for the righteous indignation of Jesus. And the righteous that, that portrays the righteous indignation of the Father who hates sin and, there, and loves us and therefore was willing to send the Son. But it's not just righteous anger. We see it mingled with love and compassion all through the passage. Jesus' anger is mingled with love and compassion. We see it from the beginning of the text. Verse 5 tells us he loved his family, this family, so therefore he waited before going back, right? He's not detached from the world. He came and was sent by the Father. Jesus loves us. He loves them, but he, he loves them in a way that's probably hard to understand at that point. But he was going to do something for their faith that was going to be of eternal consequence. He was working for their good, even when they couldn't understand. He loved them. And sometimes Jesus' love for us may look strange to us because we don't have the whole story just like if you just left off in the first 10 verses there of 
John chapter 11, you wouldn't have the whole story either. If you simply read that he waited due to his love for them, but didn't know he was going to raise him from the dead and therefore build their faith, you wouldn't understand, either would I. And when we don't know the whole story, it's hard to understand. We have to simply trust that he loves us because he's proven time and time again through the scriptures and his activity in our lives that he does loves us. Love us. Toward the end of the passage, we see Jesus weeps when he sees where they laid him. Scholars saw all this talk. Why is Jesus weeping? Why is he weeping? I think there's a lot going on. This is an emotionally charged moment between his righteous anger and his love and compassion for this family. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus can be both angry over unbelief and sin and death, angry at those things, and at the same time loving and compassionate towards those who are hurt by sin and by death. Just as God is. And I believe the fact that Jesus' friend had experienced death, the fact that his friends had saw a loved one die, thinking about that death, and all his friends must face, and all of his friends, including you and me, all of his friends, that they must face this stirred Jesus emotionally. Because he loved them, and because he loves us. So we see his identities on display. We see him righteously angry. We see him showing love and compassion. And then at the end of the passage, we see his power display when he literally just speaks and Lazarus comes forth. So that just seems hard to believe. No more hard to believe than when he said, let there be light and there's light. Right? There's creative, life-giving power in the voice of Jesus. In the voice of God. So here we see Jesus' power on display. So all of this is building. So what's the implications of this? That brings us to number three. Jesus is transforming, transforms, and is transforming the broken and dying in this world. What is the word doing? He, he transforms us. He transforms us as we place our faith in Him. He transforms us. First of all, He transforms our faith. Jesus said in verse 14, He was glad He wasn't there. Why? So that they might believe. All through this passage, the common theme is believe, 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 that you might believe, that you might believe. Lord, I believe. Father, I do this, that they might believe. Jesus asked her, do you believe? Right? It's all through the passage. John tells us his whole book is what? That you might believe. Before Jesus does the miracle, he's praying for this. All through the passage, he's working towards this. There was something about Jesus revealing himself as the resurrection and the life and proving it and raising Lazarus from the dead that would be faith-building for those who are present. Because Jesus' resurrection power transforms our faith. Transforms our faith. Jesus said to her, "What I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Whoever believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It was all about believing. It's only those that believe who experience the resurrection power of Christ. And as we do, our faith builds and our faith grows. We, we, we begin with Christ in a moment in time of faith and we continue with Christ in a life of faith and our faith grows and it matures. Much like Martha, the real question is always, do we believe? The truth is, apart from the resurrection power of Jesus, there's no reason... To believe. Our faith is hollow without the resurrection power of Jesus. If death is the end, if there's no hope in life after death, if there's no hope, but we face judgment, be judged for our sins, then who would believe? Believe what? That we're all hopeless? 
The resurrection power of Jesus gives us reason to believe in the first place. And it proves He is the one to believe in. It's faith building. It is faith transforming. Jesus' resurrection power reveals His identity and glorifies God as it reveals Jesus' glory. That's the two things you kind of see at work in the passage. The glory of God, which seems to kind of in some sense be at stake in a way of like being revealed to us, and faith. And when we believe, we begin to live by faith unto the glory of God. Knowing one day we will see the glory of God and stare into the face of the resurrected Christ. And Jesus transforms us and transforms our faith and by faith we are transformed more and more for God's glory. So Jesus transforms our faith. Another thing He does is He transforms our hope. Because of Jesus we can have hope in the midst of the broken and the world we face. When we have faith in Christ, we can face pain and suffering and even death with hope. In the passage, we see there's hope for the dead, there's hope for the living. Hope for the dead. Everyone who dies in Christ, Jesus tells us, has the glorious promise that God will raise up their body one day and transform it and unite it with their spirit. Other places the Bible tells us to be absent from the bodies to be what? Present with the Lord. The moment a believer dies, their, their spirit is present with God. And there's coming a day when they're, them and their body, listen... Their body's going to be transformed and they're going to be given a glorified body. It's going to be united with their spirit and they're going to worship and serve God forever. And every person one day, by the way, is going to have their spirit and their body reunited. Some unto judgment, some unto life. Every Christian dead or dying will one day have a body that won't get sick, that won't get tired, that won't die. That's hope for the dying, but there's also hope for the living. Jesus says those who believe will never die. We all die physically, but because Christ is the life through Him, we are promised we will never be separated from God. That the life starts now. In John 5, 21, John writes, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. In John 20, 31, But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. See, every believer can have amazing hope in the midst of a broken world full of sin, suffering, and death, and even in the face of our own death, we can have hope. Because in Christ, we'll never really die. And in Christ, we can truly be alive. We'll always be alive to God. There will never be a moment, no, no Christian dies alone. The presence of God is always there. We simply pass from this life into His presence. Jesus gives us hope. And with, and with that kind of hope, whether you're facing sin and, and suffering or pain or some of the consequences of the brokenness in the world, we can have hope and not despair because we know the King of all terrors has been defeated. Jesus also transforms our spiritual power. He takes us from powerless to actually having spiritual power. Jesus' resurrection power does that. When we go, from, we go from powerless to empowered, from spiritual death to life when we believe in Him. See, the life we get in Jesus starts when we believe. We get to be, we get to more than live forever. We get to live an empowered Christian life now. That eternal life, that abundant life begins now. That life with God begins now. And we have the life of God in us, the life of Christ in us. We're empowered by Him. In fact, without Christ, the Bible says we're dead, spiritually. 
But with Christ, it says we're alive. That's the difference in our power. We go from stuck in our sin and powerless to do anything about it, dead there, to overcoming sin and unbelief in our life, to having the very life of Christ in us. It's night and day the difference between faith in Christ and not having faith in Christ. And the danger, one of the dangers this text presents is that you can miss it. That you can somehow read Jesus say, I'm the resurrection and the life. And that you can hear the facts of how Jesus died for your sin and rose again. And that you can never apply it to your life personally. See, Martha had the right words. Oh, I, yeah, there's going to be a resurrection. Yeah, he's going to be raised from the dead. There's a resurrection coming, right? Jesus tells her on the resurrection life. The whole through the passage, she's struggling with connecting all this and what it means because you can believe the facts of a future resurrection. But the question is, have you experienced the resurrection that Christ offers in your own life now? Have we tied it to Jesus and His presence? And when we put our faith in Christ, He gives us more than some out there hope for the future. He transforms our life in the here and now. And if we have not experienced spiritual resurrection through faith in Christ in this life, we don't get the other. I know that one day I will die and they'll put my body in the ground and I can have confidence that one day that body is going to meet my spirit and be transformed because, yes, Jesus rose from the dead and His resurrection power has come into my life through faith in Him and He has given life to my dead heart. He's given me a new heart that loves Him. The resurrection was simply a forerunner. The resurrection of Lazarus was simply a forerunner. A little miracle, if I might, before the big ones. See, Lazarus would die again one day. And Lazarus' resurrection, while revealing who Jesus is, didn't save anybody other than Lazarus' physical life for a little while longer. But it pointed ahead to another resurrection. Right after this, they would begin in chapter 12, you'll, you can see that right after this, they begin to contemplate how to kill Jesus. This was, this was it. The author of life was going to taste death. The sinless Son of God would bear our sin. The one who perfectly loves would experience the very wrath of His loving Father. And you and I, because of this, <coughs> faith in Him, can be saved. We can have life because He didn't only die, He was raised to life to never die again. His resurrection and His death is what we call salvific. It saves because of His identity. Because He's the sinless Son of God. Because He is the resurrection and the life. Because He is the I Am. So when He lives the sinless life in our place that we need to live, but we can't live, we're powerless to live because we're dead in sin. And when He goes to the cross and not just hung on a cross, but hung on a cross for our sins, bearing the wrath of God, bearing our sin in His body, taking the punishment we deserve, when I bury Him in a tomb and three days later He rises from the dead to never die again in victory for our justification, proving that the check didn't bounce and when He paid for our sins, it was, it was really finished. When we place our faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God 
comes to live inside of us. So we experience the resurrection power of Christ in this life through the new life He gives us. And we have a hope that carries us into eternity. And when we trust Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus gives us reason to believe. And as believers, it gives us hope. It gives us spiritual power over sin. And when we believe, we share in that resurrection power because we're united with Christ. When Christ died, I died. Christ rose, I rose. And those bound by addiction and bound by habitual sin are set free through faith in Christ because of His resurrection power and the power of what He did on the cross. The joyless are given joy. The greedy are made generous. The faithless are made faithful. And hey, the dead are made alive. Jesus changes everything. Because he's the resurrection. The question this morning is the same as it was for Mark. One simple question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's the whole enchilada. <laughs> That's the whole thing. Do you believe this? And in John, that is life-giving, all in, I'm surrendered, man, total commitment kind of belief. All my chips are in. That kind of belief. For some, maybe today you need to believe for the first time, like for real. You're still stuck in sin. But believer, when your faith is struggling, when you're growing weary, as we do in a sin-sick world, when you grow tired of suffering and pain, and when you feel overcome by the stench of death in this world, recall that your Savior has defeated death. He has given you life and that life has begun now. And as, and as bad as it can get in this world, you'll never have to experience the worst. Listen, for a lost person, this world's as good as it gets. For a lost person, you get your best life now. That's <laughs> what it is. For a believer, this is as bad as it gets. It's as bad as it gets. That's the hope we have in Christ. He's given you life. Look at the resurrection and have your faith strength. It's faith building to contemplate the resurrection power of Christ. Have your hope restored. It's hope restoring to contemplate the resurrection power of Christ. Live in light of your spiritual empowerment in Christ because because He's raised, you can live, which means you can walk in victory over that thing you don't think you can get victory over. You can do that. You can walk in obedience to Christ. That's what I mean by victory. You can obey you don't have to be a slave to the fear of death. You don't have to be a slave to sin. You've been set free through Christ, through faith in Him, and the resurrection is proof positive. In this passage, Jesus' friends get sick, they hurt, they suffer, they lose people, they die, but they also are promised life. They also get Jesus. And it's still today, Jesus' friends. We get sick, we hurt, we suffer. We even die. But we get Jesus. Let's pray.